This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good afternoon. My name is Erin Jones and I'm your host today for the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Thanks again for another wonderful show from Marissa. Um, taking a look at the serious issues um, confronting um, members of our community. So we've got a big show today, as always, a lot going on. Um, We're talking, there's been some significant news surrounding the concentrated solar thermal um, site at Port Augustus. So we're going to be speaking to an expert, Dr Keith Love, a little bit later in the show around um, what's involved in that project and... uh, yeah, where things are up to generally. And then later in the show, we will be speaking with Michael Lord, who is the Beyond Zero Emissions Head of Research, about some news on um, on the work that he's been doing. But first of all, we want to um, have a chat. We've got on the line um, a gentleman that's uh, about to embark on a very long walk, or more to the point, an extreme long walk for climate action. So let's get him on the line now. Hello, Shannon, are you there? I'm there, yes. I'm here, rather. Great. Um, look, welcome to the show. Um, we wanted to have a chat about um, what it is that you're doing. Yes, well, by all means, let's have a chat. So I'm walking from Melbourne to Canberra, um, starting on Saturday, the 20th of April, this Saturday. Um, to protest what has been decades of inaction on climate change um, within Australia. And I guess to, um, given the timing of the project, to also call for this to be the climate election that it really should be. Yeah, exactly. We, we, we cannot have any more delay. So um, for anyone that might be interested, um, Shannon's got a website, myextremelylongwalk.com, where there's all the information. But basically, um, you're trying to raise awareness of the issues and and get some action around climate, and you're Mm -hmm. stopping at a number of towns along the way by the looks of it. I am, yeah. So stopping uh, first off in Whittlesea, so walking from Coburg, my hometown, to Whittlesea. Um, then where do we go? We go to Murrindindi Shire, so Yay, Yark, Flowerdale, um, moving through Benalla, Violet Town, Euroa, um, to Yakandanda, Chilton, Albury, um, 
Where to from there? I'm trying to memorise the route off the top of my head, but it's difficult. Um, so, so then we're in New South Wales, so we move up um, through New South Wales and on to Canberra. Okay. And so how can people, um, you know, support you or get involved in um, the sentiment that, you you know, you're trying to take um, in this walk and, and to the nation's capital? Yeah, so there's two major ways to get involved at the moment. Um, the first is you can come join me at the kickoff event at Coburg Lake this Saturday at 9am um, to see me off. And if you fancy, you can walk a bit of the first leg with me. Um, so that would be an amazing, amazing help. It would be great to have a big turnout for that. Um, and then the second and most important way that people can help is... Um, to get a copy of the petition from the website. Um, it's a paper petition, a physical petition that you need to print out and then collect a few signatures on and send up to Canberra for them to be collated. Okay, and so all the details people can get that off the website, which is myextremelylongwalk.com. Is that where they can That's go to get right. that? Yes, it's all there. Fantastic. And where? what about, um, you know, obviously you're, you're covering sort of approximately, I think it's sort of around 30-odd kilometres a day. Um, yeah. Are you camping? Are you looking for hosts? How's, how's that side of things work? Um, so I'm, I was looking for community hosts, um, but they've mostly all been secured now, which is really amazing. Um, so I'll be staying with community members for the majority of the journey and then as I make my way into the mountains before Canberra, I'm camping for a few stops. Um, there is still one place that I need a community host and that's in Whittlesea. So if anyone knows anyone in Whittlesea, definitely reach out. Okay, fantastic. Well, if people want to, um, as I said, that website is My Extremely Long Walk. Um, if you can either uh, host Shannon in Whittlesea, or this is something that um, certainly I'm sure a lot of our listeners are passionate about is climate action. Um, this is just yet another way that um, you know we br- want to bring pressure to bear on all policymakers. Um, so you can get online download and print out that petition and get some signatures and um, hopefully um, are you trying to sort of create a bit of a buzz around handing that over? Yeah, so when I hit Canberra, I've organised with a few um, Canberra-based politicians there to um, have a bit of an official handing over of the petition Um, and then my local MP um, as well as a few of the other candidates within my electorate have agreed to table the petition in the House of Representatives when Parliament resumes. Um, so we'll be hearing that um, we'll be hearing that heard out in Parliament, and then the appropriate ministers will deliver a response to what we've asked for. So we'll see how it all goes. Great. Well, um, just tell our listeners again about the the launch event on Saturday when you're when you're heading off. Yep. Um, so 9am at the Coburg Lake stage um, this Saturday, the 20th of April. Um, we are having a few speeches, talking a bit about the event, and then as a big group, we'll all be heading off towards my first stop. Fantastic. So people are very welcome to come with. Okay, great. And I and presume people can, um, you'll be making updates on the website so people can follow your process and, and walk along yes. some of the way with you. Yes, absolutely. So... Yeah, people can come on different legs of the journey with me if they so wish. Um, just get in contact with me via the website or, or social media. 
great. Well, look, all the best with that. And, um, you know, maybe you can let us know as you're going along how things are going. And um, yeah. maybe we can have a chat when, you're, um, when, you, when you come back to Melbourne and just see how everything went. Absolutely. Sounds good. Great. Thanks for your time today, Shannon. And, um, of course. Thank you. Safe travels. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. So it's important that, um, you know, everyone's taking different actions and we have to keep keep um, climate action at the forefront of um, everyone's agenda. And um, as Shannon mentioned there, we now have a date for the election um, and it's more important than ever that uh, this election is really focused on uh, climate. Um, you know, we, we don't have time to delay. So let's get on to a conversation that I had earlier today uh, with Dr. Keith Lovegrove about Port Augusta and concentrated solar thermal, which is a technology that BZE has certainly um, been a champion of for a long, long time and uh, thinks it can certainly be part of the mix of moving towards 100% renewables. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show with Erin Jones. And we're um, talking about a project that certainly BZE has uh, been a great advocate of and and certainly has wanted to see happen, and that's the solar thermal project at Port Augusta. Now, for those of you that have been involved with and aware of BZE's work right from the start, our stationary energy plan looked at the technology of concentrated solar thermal, and we'll talk a bit more about the detail of that, um, way back in 2010, and it was one of the technologies that we thought formed part of the mix to take Australia to 100% renewable energy. Since then, um, there was a group of different um, community groups that were formed to, call, to form Repower Port Augusta. And there was huge community support for a renewable energy project in that area, and especially when the predominantly um, the coal power stations closed down in that area, um, the town faced a pretty bleak future. And so there was a lot of excitement um, when that was uh, getting off the ground. But unfortunately, in the last um, week or so, we've had... Um, news that the company behind it, Solar Reserve, who runs similar facilities in the US and other places, are not proceeding and haven't been able to get finance. So we've got an expert on the line in this area, and that is Dr. Keith Lovegrove, and he's the Managing Director of ITP Thermal Proprietary Limited, and he has over 30 years' experience in solar energy um, and particularly looking at concentrated solar um, power. So welcome Keith and um, great to have you on the line. Uh, thank you Erin and good afternoon everybody. So for those that may not be um, familiar with this project, can you just give our listeners a bit of an outline of what was entailed at the Port Augusta Solar Reserve project? Okay, the plan was a, a fairly large power station, 135 megawatts electrical, um, but most importantly incorporating eight hours of storage. And the way the technology worked is a a very large tower would be built and um, a whole lot of almost flat mirrors called heliostats move throughout the day and focus all the sun's light that they collect onto the top of this tower where a receiver heats a very hot liquid 
um, nitrate potassium salt mixture, so-called molten salt, heats it up to close to 600 degrees C. Um, that's then stored in insulated tanks and then at, at will or in a dispatchable manner, you could say, used to create superheated steam for a fairly standard steam turbine power block. Um, so with a system like that, um, eight hours a day of storage, uh, you can generate power during the day and then continue on, most importantly, right through the late afternoon, early evening when um, demand is highest and supply is shortest and prices are highest. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, it was going to be a real shot in the arm for this community in providing quite a lot of jobs mm. through the construction and then some ongoing, um, a smaller number yeah. of ongoing um, maintenance and operations jobs as well. Could, could I just say at the beginning that I, I think for all of the people who've been behind this and are behind it, please don't talk about it in the past tense. Um, what, what's happened in, in the past week or so is that the developer company, the particular company, Solar Reserve, have clearly run into some financing issues. Um, but I'm here to tell the world that the technology is fundamentally sound. And um, there's three of these systems, uh, you know, in this identical configuration, there's three such systems in the world working now, all of which were basically finished in the last couple of years. Um, and each of those three were built by a different consortium of companies. So, you know, as much as it's uh, a bit sad that Solar Reserve has run into these difficulties, there are other people who can do that system, not to mention that there's other ways of doing concentrated solar thermal as well. Okay. Well, well, I mean, that's important to, to talk about because the fact is this is a project that's really ripe for someone to pick up. All, you know, from my understanding, you know, pretty much all the approvals are in place. Um, exactly. The, the hard lifting's kind of being done, if my understanding's correct. Well, I don't know about all the hard lifting, but, but certainly, you know, a site was found, the environmental approvals are there, the connection um, arrangements have been done, um, uh, most importantly, solar data has been collected for several years, and that's very, very important for designing a thing. So, so the the site and the the Port Augusta area is as ready as it's ever been to do such a plant. So, what's needed is putting together, uh, you know, the financing package led by a project developer, um, which obviously won't be Solar Reserve anymore. Mm. Because, you know, one of the things with this project is they actually had a government contract, or, or correct me if I'm wrong, is that still in place? Do you think that's something that could go to a, a new project leader to, to continue with, the South Australian government contract? Oh, look, I've, I've seen the, um, the statements from the Minister in that regard, the same as everybody else. So I think, um, I think that process has to be reset. I think... What they've said is that they'll run another tender process and, and the particular contract that, that Solar Reserve did have and have now lost was to supply the state government with its own energy requirements uh, under fairly complicated terms, which were never quite made public. Um, so clearly the state government's now left without a supplier of that 
electricity, so it'll it'll go out to market with some sort of process. Um, but it, you know, to get a project like this off the ground, it does really require some combination of a state government offering to make sure that the energy is purchased, the so-called offtake agreement, plus um, what was also offered but never quite finalised was some kind of direct financial support, probably from the federal government. I mean, that was on the table for this plant. And that was... Um, uh, and and was, we haven't okay. heard from the federal arena yet what they might do about this situation. Mm. Um, so, you know, those two ingredients are needed. There's no reason at all that they can't be worked out by, you know, a suitable set of parties. Mm. Yeah, because so we, we were looking at um, $110 million from the federal government. Um, so that's potentially still on the table. Well, I haven't heard any announcements as to what the present federal government thinks of that. I mean, people might recall, ironically, that in the last federal election, both parties... Uh, went to the election essentially offering $100 million of support, um, but neither party ever actually detailed how that would be delivered. And with the uh, the Solar Reserve project, it was never quite finalised, um, but neither, neither party have yet signalled their intentions of what they might do in the present circumstances now that we're having another election. Mm. Yeah, well, that could change. But things certainly, again. you know, the community, if the community cares about it and they uh, keep up their enthusiasm and pressure, it's the right time to be asking. Yeah, for sure. And um, you know, this was a project that was that was really um, had strong local support. Um, certainly, in the involvement that we had, and in, in the you know, probably going back a few years yeah. ago, um, the community surveys and community action that people had taken, it was it was. Um, Hugely supported. Um, yeah, I mean majority. it's incredibly symbolic because I would say that's that's probably the only example in the world of of a grassroots action for a particular innovative um, solar generating configuration. It's quite an amazing thing, actually. Mm. Well, I suppose you know um, it, it, it's it was ripe for doing that. I mean, this was a town that. Um, the coal-fired energy was was you know no longer viable, and and we want we don't want that for a whole lot of reasons, um, and it has all the connections there, so it you know that, it made right, sense yeah. to um, put a new technology in there, and um, you know there was a lot of talk about gas. I remember going back a few years ago; that was sort of you know it wasn't about the coal continuing; it was about whether the new generation was gas or was a renewable technology, and this technology was was always on the agenda. Um, mm. Certainly, you know, anyone that's gone to a BZE community um, stall or presentation over the years, we have a model that um, is of a concentrated solar um, power station where we would talk through with people about how the heliostats work and the towers and the storage and, um, you know, in, in kind of fairly layman's terms, talk about the fact that, you know, effectively these tanks are like thermoses and you heat the, the substances, you know, the molten salts and that energy is stored there and heat energy and, and used um, as effectively a battery, as you say, that eight-hour storage. So it's a technology that... Um, certainly makes sense. 
I suppose when we look at something like photovoltaics, which we're seeing more and more large-scale projects roll out, how do these two technologies, because we, we know we've seen, um, you know, PV prices come back so dramatically, um, you know, over the last decade or so, how do these two stack up against each other? Is is that, you know, the, one of the stumbling blocks in terms of financing that, that people are looking at PV as a more um, cost-effective solution? Well, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting times. Um if you go back to your study from 2010 when BZE said, aha, here's, here's solar thermal with storage, we think this is the cheapest way. Um, in fact, I think the people who did that study thought a combination of solar thermal with storage plus wind mm. might be cost effective. And so it, at that time, they were acknowledging that you needed something which had the stored energy dispatchable behaviour about it, so you couldn't just do it with wind. I think the people who did that study vastly underestimated the ability of photovoltaics to become cheaper, um, and what we've seen in the intervening years is that, well, actually, photovoltaics have become much, much cheaper. But really, what photovoltaics do is fight in a space with wind, because neither wind nor photovoltaics alone have that ability to store energy and be dispatchable. And I think we get a lot of sort of misrepresentation in discussions where people try to compare solar thermal with PV. Well, they do completely different things. What you might rather do is, say, compare solar thermal with its storage, molten salt storage, to a combination of PV and batteries or Mm. a combination of PV and pumped hydro. That, that would be the, the better comparison. Um, and in terms of the difficulty of financing, one of, one of the big challenges we've had up till now, and it's probably about time to do something about it, is that our entire renewables industry, the, the thing that's really, really caused it to grow is our renewable energy target scheme with the certificates that it awards to generators. The problem with that scheme now is that every megawatt hour of generation is is rewarded equally. And what that means is if we find that wind and PV are cheaper per megawatt hour, which they are, we keep rewarding them preferentially. And the things that we are going to absolutely need to get us to 50% and then 100% renewables, which are the things with storage and dispatchability characteristics, under the RET as it currently stands, they they keep missing the boat because they are a bit more expensive, but they are both essential and inherently more valuable. Mm. Well, like as you say, it's not really a fair comparison, is it? Because PV is only one side of the story. We're not having that, um, you know, unless you're comparing, like you say, PV and battery with solar thermal, which has storage, um, you're not comparing like with like. No, exactly, exactly. So, okay, what then about this interconnector um, in South Australia? And it seems like um, Labor had more of a policy that wanting a standalone um, and the ability to be self-generating within their state, whereas it seems the um, the Liberal government uh, currently there in South Australia 
I suppose a lot of the early work was done with the Labor state government, seemed to be more open to connecting to other states. Do you think that was part of the issue and concern? Yes, I've seen that discussion and I'm not quite sure what to make of it. I suspect... I mean, the argument is that if you if you have interconnectors, then what will happen is that in peak times when the price would otherwise be high, you'll import more electricity from interstate. So that, that certainly has a logic to it. Um, but I don't know that... I really don't know that it was material to the solar reserve situation. I mean, the, the solar reserve situation also reflects some international factors that were affecting that company. It's not, not just about South Australia. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't say whether the interconnector played a role or not. I mean, in the very long term, the, there's potential for the interconnector to allow South Australia to export energy during those peak periods. So, Well, I think um, that was reflected, well, maybe not so much the export, but that pricing with the government contract was priced fairly lowly. When I was going back and doing some research for our discussion, um, you know, that $78 per megawatt hour, which was the government contract, I was looking at some of the earlier figures, um, you know, going back gosh, many years ago, and it was something like $250 a megawatt hour. Yes, there's a very important point, though, that the $78 was only ever half the story. Yes. Um, The... The capital cost figures that Solar Reserve talked about at the time when the project was announced certainly don't line up with $78 a megawatt hour is not enough to justify that project. And I think the point was that the contract they had with the state government, which was complicated and never shared with the public, had an element of um, being able to access peak... Um, peak prices in the network uh, in, in the wholesale market mm. to solar reserves' advantage. Yes. Um, so there was an element where solar reserve was still taking the risk and the state government was underwriting the project. Now, now whether any of that, the modelling of, of, of that benefit was impacted by the interconnector, I don't know. It's conceivable it was. Yeah, well, well, that would that would make sense because, I mean, at, at that sort of figure, you're... Um yeah. They were planning on I, making I think, more in the peak. You know, peak you know if we peak. want to understand what's happened to the solar reserve, it's mostly about that company, in a sense, running out of cash. You know, they've tried very, very hard to get that project up, but it's also worth noting that they had a project in South Africa mm. that that's also been on the books for a long time. And, and rather, very unfortunately for them and the industry, that the project in South Africa got completely caught up in the corruption of the previous regime in South Africa. So okay. they were awarded an off-take agreement there, and then the government just refused to actually sign it. And it's been held up for two years. But now that they've, uh, you know, there's a new president in place, that. Um, off-take agreement's finally been signed, but not before Solar Reserve actually reduced their involvement in the project. So the, the, the two things that they had lined up to do following their Nevada project, being South Africa and South Australia, have both been held up by circumstances beyond their control. And what I think you see is that 
there's only so long a company can go before it says, well, no, we can't, we can't afford to carry the overhead of this. We, we actually have to bail out. Mm. So really we need to be seeing this as a financing issue for a company that had um, you know, projected cash flows uh, influenced by outside factors as opposed to a stain on the technology. Absolutely. But it, but it is worth noting on the technology, um, uh, as it happens, I was actually visiting the Nevada plant um, on the 22nd of March, and the day I was there, it was working very well. But that's not to um, take away from the fact that it has had some, mm. had a lot more teething issues in its commissioning phase than the, the companies involved would have liked. Um, and, and so those teething issues would certainly play on the minds of potential financiers. Yes, and um, I've... But, but the signs are that, that it, it is fundamentally sound. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've read a bit about those um, issues in Nevada and it did seem quite protracted, those issues. And, and there's some commentary who's kind of saying, well, really, should we be using a portion of some public monies... Um, in a technology that is still having teething problems. So, well, I'd say... Well, I suppose we do that in lots of ways, though, don't when we? you do need yeah. to use public money because if you don't get the first ones over the line, mm. we, won't have, we won't have a mature thing. No. Um, but as I said, there's, there's three such plants working in the world now, and interestingly, the, one I, the other one I know most about is one in Morocco that was built by a... Spanish-Chinese consortium, um, and that's, that started later than the Nevada plant but finished earlier and seems to have hit the ground running mm-hmm. uh, with m- much less problems in its commissioning. And, and probably what you find is that as the second in the world, they managed to sort of borrow a few lessons from the Nevada project, even though it wasn't their project. Um, but, but it's also worth remembering that the whole solar thermal industry, there's plants that have been running continuously for 35 years. Um, so it's, it, the innovation is actually these tall towers with the molten salt at the very high temperatures. That's, that's like the next step. Um, but, but there's a very solid backbone of the trough plants that just sort of work day in, day out for years and years and don't get in the news because nothing's going wrong with them. Mm. And uh, do we have some of them in Australia? I think there is one that's been going for quite a while in is it somewhere in New South Wales. From no, I mean, Australia is, you know, for one of the sunniest places yeah. in the planet, it's, it's really managed to fail at this technology in, in very strange ways. We've just not managed to do it. Um, and I, I suppose it's really because, as a country, we haven't been motivated enough simply because we run on coal mm. um, and we haven't really sort of valued the dispatchability. Um, but really, it's about time that that changed. Yeah, and I mean, um, you know, it's got to change. What's your thoughts then about... Uh, because obviously, you know, when we're talking about these technologies of dispatchability and, um, you know, we've talked about PV married with batteries and um, costing-wise, uh, what do you see as the trajectory of 
let's say PV and battery versus concentrated solar thermal with storage? Right. Well, um, ITP actually led a fairly large comprehensive study late last year for the Australian Renewable Energy Agency on exactly this, which was a comparison of all the different options for being dispatchable and renewable. So, you know, we compared PV and batteries with solar thermal and bioenergy and pumped hydro. And the, the very interesting thing is that you actually can't pick a winner. Um, but what, what happens is that different technologies suit different timescales. So a battery system is particularly good for about one hour of storage, which is what the, um, the Tesla big battery, the Hornsdale Wind Farm does. Yeah. So very good for sort of smoothing intermittency and changing ramp rates in uh, wind and PV. But the actual cost of stored energy is very, very high. So when you go out beyond about two hours, it doesn't look so good. And things like pumped hydro and solar thermal with molten salt are actually very close in their costs uh, when you translate it through to a cost of electricity. Um, and, and they can be quite affordable anywhere between, say, seven hours of storage right out to you know, more than a day of storage. So really um, they so achieve different things for different purposes and they, we need right. them all. Yes. And, and, and really, there's no evidence there that could or should cause a government to try to pick a winner. Uh, I mean, really, what you really want is a sort of market signal that allows investors to put their money where their mouth is, um, but then to, to reward them accordingly to what they're actually delivering. Mm. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name is Erin Jones, and we're speaking today with Dr. Keith Lovegrove from ITP Thermal Proprietary Limited, and Keith is an expert in this particular technology, which was and still can be um, put in at Port Augusta in South Australia, and it's something that we've followed as a project. It's a technology that BZE has certainly been an advocate for right back from um, our early work in stationary energy back in 2010, and we're just talking about the uh, different applications of the technology not only in Australia but but around the world. Um, so what's what's you, you spoke about some of the other plants that are that are around the world. Some of these operators who either constructed them or are running them are they likely candidates to potentially look at this site and taking over this project? Oh, I'm sure they would be um, if if they felt sufficiently welcome. Um, what what countries? do when, they, when they're successful with these things is usually run some kind of international competitive process um, and, and Australia's done quite a bit of that um, well various state governments have done it for wind farms and so forth where it's an open competition in a kind of reverse auction um, so that could easily be done if the will was there for solar thermal in South Australia for example um, the what, what, what you need to understand with any given plant is that there's multiple parties involved and they usually put together a consortium. So there'll be the project developer, which is really a company that 
finds the site and sort of puts the financing together but doesn't necessarily build it. And then there'll be a, a subcontractor that does the engineering, uh, procurement and construction. Um, and then, then there'll be other companies who actually provide the design of the technology and maybe manufacture the heliostats or what, whatever it is. Um, and then multiple small subcontractors under that. So it's a very complex story, made even more complex by the fact that um, sometimes large companies take multiple roles and, and are both developer and technology provider, for example. But um, so, so the point actually is that if, if you run a proper competitive process, uh, consortia will form themselves get all the pieces together and then make their bids. And it may not be exactly the same consortia that built the one in Morocco that might come to the party for South Australia, for example. Mm. Okay. I mean, we've had um, Solar Reserve go to the government and, and kind of there's, the government seems to have been relatively accommodating and extending timelines to get the point of, of financing locked in place. But now they've come and, and said kind of it's not going to happen. Who are you seeing now as being the the driving force to, you know, put that framework in place that you've just described to, hopefully, um, you know, get yes, a well, I, I suspect there's a bit of a, a sort of coordination vacuum there because we've we've got three things going on. We've got well, what will the state government do, uh, and then we've got what will the federal government do. And then the third thing is, well, what will Solar Reserve actually do with the site? Um, and obviously we're in the middle of a federal election, so it's not the absolutely mm. best time for a state and federal government to try to coordinate things, but maybe whatever happens, maybe after the election something can be done there. Um, the, the site is an interesting one because, as I understand it, Solar Reserve are trying to sell their assets so-called, which means the rights to the site along with all its connections. Um, now, that, they're just going to try to get the, the best offer they can, but then people who might be interested in that site, the value of it to them rather depends on what the, both the state and federal government might offer them if they actually went ahead with a similar project. So we've got a sort of tricky situation where there's a three-way situation um, and, I, I mean, it's going to take a bit of time to work through, but I'd say, um, you know, the people, the people most able to kind of um, put some pressure there would be the community itself. If they, if they keep on saying to both state and federal people that they'd really like this to happen, um, then maybe it will still. Yeah, and look, um, we might try to get um, one of the representatives of Repower Port Augusta on the line in the next um, a little while and, and just see what actions they're taking on the ground to kind of keep that pressure up. Indeed. Yeah. Well, look, I really appreciate your time today, Keith. Thank you so much for coming on the line and... Uh, talking about uh, the complexities of, of what is a, um, any large uh, project like this and certainly um, 
you know, there was a lot of work done to to get it off the ground. It's in the right location with the, you know, the connections there and everything else. And and it would be great to see a large scale um, example of this technology operating in Australia. Because as you mentioned, um, we certainly have the the um, the solar uh, resources there. That's not the problem. Um, it's just a matter of getting these things over the line and. And, yeah, in a federal election cycle, we need to make sure that people are making, um, you know, demanding of their uh, their um, candidates that this is the type of technology that we want to see moving forward, different um, forms of renewable energy. As you mentioned, they all have their place, whether it's PV and batteries or, or um, longer-term storage. So uh, we've got to move forward with this technology one way or the other. Okay, thank you very much, Aaron. Thanks, Keith. Nice to chat with you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Listeners, you're on the Beyond Zero Emissions show with Erin Jones, and I've got with me Michael Lord, and Michael is the head of research at BZE and has just had a three-year anniversary, but um, is actually moving on to other things and got some family commitments back in the UK. So he's come in to have a chat with us today about some of the great work that he has been part of in his time with BZE. And um, we'll talk about some of those highlights and, and some of the different thing that, things that he's been involved in. So welcome, Michael. Thanks, Aaron. It's always nice to have you in the studio. We've talked about some of the different projects that you've been involved in, rethinking cement, electrifying industry, just to name a couple. Um, but as I mentioned, you've been with the organisation for three years. So what are the changes that you've seen over that time in, in both the work that BZE's put out and, and in the broader context? Um. In, in terms of the broader context, I think the big change has been the falling cost of renewable energy, which is now making, I think, BZE's idea that um, the organisation had years ago that Australia could be 100% renewable, uh, which, which then was uh, an extreme, it was a radical position even in the environmental and climate space. Uh, but we really opened up that idea that 100% renewable was was possible, especially in Australia, and showing in detail how it could happen. I think that's no longer a radical, extreme position. That's uh, you know we haven't quite got you know uh, uh, elements of politicians there yet, but many people would say that that is perfectly doable now. And in fact, on the current build-out rates of renewables, we would achieve it uh, within within 10 or 12 years. Um, but we, but we won't. We, we still won't get there uh, without better policy. But the idea has gone mainstream. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And certainly, I think that was the emphasis in those early days with BZE was was mm. going to talk to people. Um, you know, when that stationary energy plan came out in two thousand and ten, yeah, and and it kind of said, we're not going to debate climate change. We're going to show you how technically this could be achieved, and here's some some technical solutions. And at the time, I think we were mainly focusing on concentrated solar thermal and wind, and we'd mapped out kind of geographically where that needed to be. Now, that's not to say 
that that's not going that's the way it's going to be but we put that seed out there in the community that this is not a technical impossibility and I think like you say that was fairly radical at the time um, but now we're seeing a whole lot of organizations and and sentiment um, come around to think that that is possible um, and a lot of organizations getting behind it and certainly a lot of businesses as well actually seeing that um, you know the cost parity has come down so far that the kind of the financial arguments not really relevant anymore that's right that's right and I think that approach of Beyond Zero Emissions, I mean, credit to the guys who set up Beyond Zero Emissions and had this idea of focusing on the technology in the climate area. I think that approach has stood the test of time because it takes some of the politics out of it mm. by saying, look, we have the engineering solutions. There is commercially available technology to do this. Uh, it's, it's affordable. Uh, it, would, it would create jobs. That approach still gets cut through in the different sectors that, we're, that we've since tackled and um, Beyond Zero Emissions isn't in the renewable energy area so much anymore. When, you know, there's plenty of others in that area where we wouldn't add so much, but there are, we, we've moved into areas where there's still a lack of discussion uh, about how we can eliminate emissions. So s since I've been working at Beyond Zero Emissions, that's been industry, uh, cement and manufacturing, which still is you know, beyond what most people are talking about and no parties really have a clear uh, policy for how we eliminate emissions in those areas. Yeah, and I think that's a thing that Beyond Zero Emissions has always been at the forefront. I mean, in the early days, back in 2010, we were talking about stationary energy, um, when that was still, as you say, sort of pie-in-the-sky stuff to get to 100% renewable. And then we've moved through buildings and land use and some of those other things. But starting to pick off some of those uh, harder, to, you know, to kind of get a handle on. I mean, nowadays, who hasn't got PV on their roof? It's such a um, logical decision for for most homeowners. But we're starting to get into the things that certainly you and I have spoken about mm. around those industrial processes yeah. and the building industry and you know heavy um, commercial usage. So we had a great event a couple what, last year, I think it was the Electrifying Industry Summit, um, and that was a great way that that event um, launched the work that you'd been been heading up around electrifying industry. Um, do you want to just tell our listeners who may not be familiar what that en encapsulated and, and yeah. how we rolled that out? Sure. Um, so when I started at Beyond Zero Emissions, as you said, Beyond Zero Emissions had covered uh, m most areas of the economy that produce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, so electricity, land use, transport, um, buildings. But what, what we hadn't, which was always a plan at the start, was to cover industry and manufacturing. So that was my remit, really, to say, well, how can we eliminate emissions in this area? And I started off... Uh, planning just to do one report on industry. Um, but it turned out that the first report was about cement because there was so much just in that area. And when I realized it was 8% of world emissions and no one was really talking about it, and if they were talking about it, they were saying, oh, we can't do anything about those emissions. I wanted to do a report specifically about cement. Uh, so the, in a way, so there was construction and cement industry couldn't ignore that source of emissions uh, so we it's pretty we, significant yeah eight percent eight percent it is so uh, as we say in the report it's about the same as all cars in the mm. world and people think a lot more about the emissions of car from cars than uh, cement um, so 
we produced that r report and you know it was the first time for me launching a report and there's a lot of we we talked to a lot of people in industry but you still don't know how it's going to land uh whether people are going to think you know it's it's too far out there uh, we can't eliminate these emissions but we spent time we think we spoke directly in conferences meetings briefings to more than a thousand stakeholders and the the feedback was overwhelmingly positive and we felt we hit a nerve with the industry that they wanted to re uh, eliminate these emissions the, i'm talking about the construction industry and the buildings industry and um, it's led to a number of great impacts um, one of which uh, we've spoken about on the friday bze show which it's led to a, 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 um, a project with transurban who may not be at, n at the top of people's idea of uh, uh, you know sustainable companies of the world but they do want to change reduce their emissions they're a huge purchaser of cement and so we we have worked with them to say how they could implement the solutions in rethinking cement and it's something like it's a big uh, player like transurban being ambitious that will get the market to shift mm. yeah yeah fantastic and I suppose that was the thing when we talked about industry, it was kind of too big to tackle as one piece, wasn't yes, it? So then we started looking at the different different things that fell out of that. So the cement being the first one in 2017 yes. and then moving on to some other sectors. Yeah, and then we moved on, as you say, to electrifying industry. So that was out a year after Rethinking Cement. We had a summit at the Australian Synchrotron in, in Melbourne and 200 people from... Uh, industry and government came to our one-day summit uh, and uh, that was all about how the manufacturer of everything else other than cement uh, can move to renewable electricity so we're not saying that's the only way but factories burn a lot of fossil fuels within the factory to mostly to generate heat mm. uh, so they burn natural gas usually in Australia so how can they stop doing that and we think a big part of the answer is to exploit Australia's potential to generate renewable electricity and electrify that heat. And it's a similar case as uh, in our buildings plan. We spoke about going from gas heating of, of homes to an electrically powered heat pump that uh, not only can you do it, but it, it saves you money. It's many times more efficient. There are lots of opportunities like that with industrial heat when we're usually talking about much higher temperatures of you know, 100 degrees, several hundred degrees, sometimes several thousand degrees. But for all of these cases, there's actually an electrical uh, heating solution based on commercialised technologies like industrial heat pumps, microwaves, infrared, induction, all technologies that we understand very well, but we, we've only scratched the surface of their potential in manufacturing. So, yeah, electrifying industry was a big piece of work that tried to cover a lot of sectors. Mm. And, and certainly what um, I'm sure a lot of those, those businesses in that manufacturing and well, pretty much any sector have really been hugely sensitive to is the massive increases in prices that they've had for powering their businesses and the volatility of those prices. So showing a solution um, that, you know, can marry up with whether it's uh, – localized on roof solar or you know collective buying of solar or or uh, supporting solar projects that they can then feed into and at least take a you know handle on those costs must have been you know fairly good good news for some of those yeah that's right that that was why it was probably the right time to release electrifying industry because uh, businesses manufacturers were thinking about 
their uh, heat energy because the pr- the cost of gas had doubled or even trebled mm. in the in the previous couple of years for many of them. Um, so it's definitely the right time to think about this, but it's still uh, we're still a bit ahead of the curve uh, uh, on this. The idea that you don't need gas at all mm. is still quite uh, a novel idea for a lot of manufacturers and that you can switch to something like heat pumps. And, you know, to be honest, we we do need government to get involved in shoving this forward because while the technologies we put forward are all understood and viable, there aren't the the same supply chains, there aren't the same sort of, you know, consultants who will go and tell you how to install these uh, and installers in the way that there would be for a gas boiler, the traditional ways of doing things. And I suppose to a degree... Certainly at a household level, you know, the fact that we do have such high penetration of residential solar yeah. is because that was supported. Yes. And in the early days, we had those those strong feed-in tariffs to to get that momentum up and get that industry established. Now, on a commercial level, when we're talking about moving some of those manufacturers and, and a whole lot of different businesses from gas, which you say is kind of the the tried and tested and, and what people are familiar with yeah. um, to actually support that transition um, and maybe, you know, that needs to be improved a lot more. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Solar PV had a huge amount of support, not just from Australia, you know, but one of the big reasons it fell in price was because of the support from the Chinese government and mm. and the, the Chinese manufacturers bringing down the price of Solar PV and, and others around the world. Uh, we need the same kind of level of commitment and uh, consistent uh, investment and policy support in manufacturing. We're starting to see it a bit in Europe. So, you know, a lot of the suppliers of the technologies I'm talking about and a lot of the existing examples of switching from gas to electricity uh, are taking place in Europe. There aren't too many examples uh, in Australia yet, but we're hoping to change that. We're, we've got a project, so my colleague Heidi Lee uh, is running a project uh, called Zero Carbon Factory. So we're looking for a partner, a manufacturing partner who uses a lot of gas at the moment, who is willing to uh, in, invest to switch to uh, a more efficient electrical heating. Okay, great. Mm. And so is, is, you know, we've got someone out there in, in Radioland listening today mm. that thinks, hmm, okay, I'm, I'm pretty interested in that, is... Is there a specific, specific geographic location or is that up for grabs as to where that can, it can be? It can be anywhere in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it can be anywhere. The, the um, criteria are you've got to be a manufacturer, a significant user of gas or another fossil fuel for heating purposes. And, um, yeah, there are, you know, those are the two main criteria, basically, and we're going to hopefully be looking for funding, either federal or state government funding, to... to help this happen okay great Mm. oh well we'll put in the um show notes some links to the website and more information that people can get from that so you mentioned there Heidi and she's taking over some of that work will her role take over the majority of the work that you've been doing or how's that going to work yeah I'm handing over um my current projects to Heidi so just to explain who Heidi Lee is she's been involved with beyond zero emissions from a long time back I don't think since quite day one but since early days of beyond zero emissions and she was the project director producing the buildings plan so she's an architect she knows a lot about buildings 
Um, so that very successful piece of work that uh, I think was out five or six years ago, mm. um, she was responsible for delivering um, with colleagues. So she And she's also been on the board of Beyond Zero Emissions. So she's a long-time collaborator and supporter. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, I feel very relieved that I can hand over my current projects uh, into Heidi's capable hands and she'll be covering for a period of a few months while we yeah think about uh, a replacement and you know whether the role needs to change. Right okay and um, we know that uh, you're if anyone's got a keen ear out there you've got a British accent and so you've got some um, uh, Family back, obviously back in the UK that yep. you're going to spend some time with, and uh, we might hopefully see you sometime in the future back with some association with BZE. Uh, th- yeah, I th- uh, I think that's definitely going to happen, Erin. Yeah, I need to spend some time um, back with family in the UK. Um, I also want a bit of a break. It's been a fantastic three years. Uh, the most rewarding part of my career, uh, but it's also at times exhausting. So I just mm. want a bit of a break, and then I'll definitely be back associated with Beyond Zero Emissions in some way, and also back, uh, you know, in the climate movement, trying to make the change happen that we, we know needs to happen. Yeah, and look, I think it's a really important point that you bring up. Um, you know, people generally are in this field because they're passionate about the work and yeah. getting the change and seeing the change and. Um, you know, it's not always the most rewarded, um, you know, financially or uh, um, in other ways. But but if people aren't doing this work and aren't doing the advocacy, then we'd be back where we were in 2010 when people didn't think this could be mainstream, that we, the country and the whole world could go to 100% renewables. So, um, you know, it's great that you've been involved and done this really important work in an area that is not as obvious as many of the um, places, you know, solar PV on roofs is is pretty obvious. But some of this industry work particularly uh, is probably not the first thing that people think of. But we need to transition all these sectors. And as you say, 8% for cement, uh, you know, EVs at the moment are all over the front page, but we don't see too many front pages around cement, do we? Yeah, it's funny that, yeah, cement and concrete don't make the front page, yeah. But no. uh, but I have to say, Erin, you, you, you're absolutely right. It's not if, if, you, if, you're, if you're motivated totally by money, this mm. sector is not the sector for you. Um, but on the other hand, it has been a, an honour and a privilege to work for this organisation. And uh, um, yeah, as I say, it's been the most rewarding few years of my career. Oh, great. Well, look, it's been wonderful to work with you and I appreciate the time that you've given to us here at the radio show um, over those years and um, wish you the best of luck and um, look forward to seeing you in the future. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Michael. Bye-bye. Bye. So that's wrapped for today's Beyond Zero Emissions show. Uh, Make sure that you're enrolled to vote. It's a critical election for climate. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. Look forward to coming up next, Communication Mixdown. See you next time.